I knew we had a Natalie Merchant ringer in our band. Now I know we have Amy Mann, too. (laughs) Songs of the 90s at Wellsprings. (laughs) Ah, that song is beautiful, and it can be hard to listen to. I first heard it in this movie that some of you might have seen came out in 1999, Magnolia. It's a long movie and a sad movie. And about two-thirds of the way through, just when you think it might be ending, but it's not, all of the characters are shown singing that song in unison. It's not going to stop until you wise up. It's a moment of clarity. It's a moment where things start to turn around in the plot, where all of these characters stop running from whatever it is that they have been running from. It felt like the right intro to the message that I wanted to share today as part of our Words That Work series, the series leading up to the summer, where each week we're talking about a different well-known phrase, a truism, something you might have heard before, and digging into why it works, why it stays with us. Today, talking about the phrase, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) couple nods, wherever you go, there you are. Darn it. Right. I first heard that phrase around the same time as I saw the movie Magnolia in my early 20s. And that phrase was very real for me. It was very live for me in my 20s. That decade of my life was a time when it seemed like everyone was always in motion. Right. Everybody was thinking about the next city, the next job, the next degree or grad program, the next relationship. And it wasn't until I got towards the end of that decade in my 20s that I started to notice in other people and also in myself that it started to feel like we were just changing clothes on the same body. It started to feel like we were expecting these outward changes we made to have an inward effect, and more often than not, they didn't, really. The third relationship blew up for the same reason the first one did. The new city suddenly began to look just as drab and boring as the old one. The new job, the new career didn't really promise the respect and the fulfillment that we were craving, that we thought it would any more than the old one did. There are ways that this truism is real in that particular time of life when we are moving around all the time. But there are also ways that it can be with us for any phase of our lives. Of course, when we physically settle right into a place, maybe when we purchase a home, when we commit to a partner or a career path, that is one thing. But when we try to learn to stay with who we are, when we try to learn to stay with our inner work, that is another. That challenge of wherever you go, there you are. That can appear no matter what decade of life we find ourselves in. I have a minister from the early days of when I started going to church when I was in my 20s also. Her name was Shauna Lingood. She's in Canada now. But at the time, she was preaching in D.C. where I went to church, and she told a story one day about taking a weekend retreat booking herself a couple nights in a well-known retreat center nearby that was beautiful and peaceful, filled with nature. 
And she really needed it. She was stressed out. There were things going on at work. There were things going on at home. And she said, let me just get this time away to get centered and to get some of that good retreat center juice, right? So she showed up. She drove in the first day, got to her little little plain room, unpacked her stuff. She changed into her most comfortable, serene, spiritual outfit, She put on her soft leather shoes, right, grabbed the journal that she'd purchased just for this purpose with its beautiful paper on the outside, just for this weekend and a pen. And she went outside on a gorgeous, gorgeous spring day, probably a lot like this one. And she started looking, wandering around the grounds, past the creek and the pond, looking for a spot that was just far enough away from everyone else that she could get really into it, right? She found a tree on top of a hill, and she got up to that tree. She kicked off her shoes, felt her feet in the grass. She sat. Ah, she thought, I'm going to get me some God. (sighs) Peaceful, right? (sighs) Okay, I'm ready. Where's the wisdom? Where's the voice? Come on, come on. Where's the poetry? No, I don't want to think about my, my partner. No, I don't want to think about work. Go away. The thoughts that came to her were not serene or calm. There was no poetry. It was just the same old stuff. It was the same conflicts and the same troubles that she had tried to get away from. Shauna had paid good money for that retreat, and she was pissed. (laughs) She was frustrated. She snapped her book shut. She went for a frustrated walk. She ate a frustrated dinner. She read poetry frustrated before she went to sleep. And the next day, she went outside. She did the same thing. She found a new tree, right? She sat down, and it was the same old stuff that kept coming back to her. And eventually she started to cry. And she decided to give up, to give in. And instead of opening up her journal to write beautiful words of poetic wisdom, she started writing down all that crap that had come to her. Pima Shadron, the Buddhist nun, says, As a species, we should never underestimate our low tolerance for discomfort. Our low tolerance for discomfort is the argument that Pima Shadron makes for spiritual practice, in her case, for meditation. Because our discomfort is unavoidable, a practice like journaling or meditation can teach us to know our internal landscapes well. That is the way that points toward real freedom, the kind that Kathleen talked about last week in her message. When she quoted David Foster Wallace, the real value of a real education has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time. The awareness of our own internal patterns, internal habits of thought and mind, when we can become aware of them, it gives us the freedom to choose what we really want. Instead of just repeating these unconscious ruts of activity, 
instead of just becoming overwhelmed with our feelings and seeking some kind of escape hatch. When I first showed up to Wellsprings in 2013, five years ago now, as an intern, there was only one thing that Ken told me I had to do that was really non-negotiable. It was to develop a spiritual practice, a regular spiritual practice, preferably mindfulness. Darn it, he was right. (laughs) When I first began sitting meditation, I was very resistant. And I remember actually coming out of my mouth, saying to Ken out loud, what's inside my head is boring. I'm much more interested in other people. That's why I'm a minister. That's why I'm a pastor. But the truth is that I was uncomfortable getting to know myself. I found it scary, alienating. For a whole host of reasons, I had spent most of the first three decades of my life focused on other people, on how to make other people happy, not to prioritize myself or being at peace with myself or getting to know myself. I never got much practice in naming or recognizing, let alone working through my own emotions. The details of my story are different, but there are some echoes of what I felt between my story and what I read in a beautiful reflection this week by this woman. Her name is Annika Campbell. She was trained as a nurse and worked as a nurse for much of her life. She now works as a writer, a filmmaker, a storyteller. She wrote a reflection called Presence and Recovery about her relationship with her daughter. Annika Campbell's adult daughter entered treatment for alcoholism 10 years ago. And a couple years after her daughter entered treatment, Annika started attending Al-Anon meetings which are for family members of people who struggle with substance use disorder. It didn't take Annika long, she said, to realize that my responses to all these beloved addicts in my life, my daughter included, my responses were just as compulsive as the need they had to pick up a drink or a drug. She couldn't bear to simply be with her daughter's behavior or her daughter's suffering. She said, instead of taking a drink myself, though, I assuaged my anxiety by writing her a check or giving her advice or calling yet another therapist, looking up something else for her on the Internet, making her tea and treats. I not only wanted her to be different, she said, but felt that was my job to help her change. My responsibility as a parent, not just when she was a child, but also when she was an adult. She said, denial accompanies addictive habits, and we don't necessarily recognize what is driving us, especially when it comes in the guise of love. Annika was helped not just by the inspiration and the empathy from the other parents that she met in that Al-Anon group, people, she said, who could love their children without that love driving them to unwise action or compromising their own values. But she was also helped by learning to sit with herself and her own emotions. She found a book through her group on Buddhism and the 12 steps, connecting that 12-step philosophy with the Buddhist tradition called One Breath at a Time. 
And the book talked about this tendency we all have to want to change our experience. That that tendency is the root of the addictive dilemma. The desire to just feel different than we do. Annika said, I didn't have to be an alcoholic to want to feel differently, to want to escape the discomfort caused by all of those self-destructive behaviors of the people I loved. Fixating on her, she said, kept me busy with the past. What did I do wrong? And with the future, what can I do? And prevented me from having the actual experience of the present discomfort. When she let herself be with those feelings of discomfort, she finally could see that internal landscape of her mind, that internal topography. She could see the difference between over here, that fear that I had for my child's health, and over here, that need to keep my self-image as a good mother intact. Bless you. She could see the difference between wanting to escape the pain of disappointed expectations from basic human empathy towards someone she loved. And instead of analyzing her daughter's behavior and planning some new strategy to spur a change, she said, I became aware of the heaviness in my sternum and the tightness in my gut. I started recognizing embodied in me all sorts of inherited and automatic fears that had me breathing shallow, chewing fast, keeping my jaw tight when I was sleeping, and saw how conveniently my fixation on the problems of others allowed me to escape all those tensions inside myself. There are so many ways that we try to escape discomfort. There are these big, obvious ones that people make movies about and TV shows, right? The things that we label midlife or quarter-life crises. Jumping too quickly into a new relationship, embracing the fantasy that a new job or a new city will mean a whole new life, jet-setting across the world as a reprieve from tensions that are boiling still at home. There are the deeply destructive ways to escape the ones that numb us out from our lives right where we are. Drugs, alcohol, reckless sex, compulsive gambling. And there are also these tiny, mundane, ordinary practices. The ones that don't hurt too bad. They're, they're kind of like the easy buttons, right? The little things that we do. The two glasses of wine couple nights a week that don't incapacitate us, don't really feel like a problem. The constant preoccupation with work, checking our email, even, as Annika points to, the way we can engage our relationships as a means of escaping our own feelings. Noticing these practices might invite us into some empathy with each other to recognize that our desire to escape from discomfort is so human. It's so normal. And to recognize that we all have places to grow in our ability to cultivate real attention and heartbreak and presence with each other. 
these little easy button practices are certainly not probably as destructive, right, as a chemical dependency is to the body or gambling away a mortgage is to a family. But the problem can come when those easy button habits are repeated over and over and over and become ruts. And then year after year turns into decade after decade. And we wake up one day when we really want to be present. When we really want to be able to experience intimacy and connection, to be there for ourselves or for someone else through something real and difficult. And we find that our muscles for the practice of presence have atrophied. We've spent so much time running from the discomfort that is normal and natural that we don't know how to be where we are. Miguel Clark Mallet is a frequent contributor to something I read a lot, the NPR On Being blog. It goes along with the On Being podcast. This is Miguel right here. He wrote a piece just last week called My Feelings Are Not My Enemies. Miguel opens with a memory, a very clear story from when he was 12 years old. He remembers standing in his dining room right by the table, and he had a lot of siblings, Miguel. One of his brothers was across the room teasing him for something, making fun of him, something that had happened probably thousands and thousands of times before. And Miguel just got so angry with his brother that he picked up the nearest thing that could be used as a weapon that he could find, a sharp nail file on the desk. And he threw it at his brother like one of those spinning axes. Fortunately, he said, I was a poor shot. But it speared itself on the sharp end in a bookshelf right next to his brother's head. From that moment, Miguel was hit with the weight of what his emotions could do. The harm that he could cause even to people he loved because of this expressive self he had. Easily driven, he said, to both anger or tears. A soft self that was permeable, this thin membrane that bled feelings so easily. His fear of his emotions was compounded by a lot of different messages around him. In a family of arguers, he found himself flooded with emotion a lot. He was often overwhelmed. He understood also that anger for him as someone black and male could get him in a lot of trouble. Even though he was confused that it also seemed to be the dominant way men expressed themselves on TV and in movies, all his heroes on screen and in real life. And faced with all this confusion, Miguel decided the best course was to run from this part of himself. He joined the debate team to find a way to stay calm and rational, right, in an argument. He went into journalism, a career that prizes objectivity and facts and dispassionate detachment. Then academia, a place where broad, rational theories are, you know, the best possible thing, prized over the messy realities of anyone's particular life. But he said all that anger and sadness wouldn't go unfelt. And the more he suppressed it, the more those feelings reemerged as other things, as uncertainty, as self-reproach, as anxiety, as depression. 
Unfortunately, it's never too late for us to learn. Miguel realized that. Medication, therapy, self-help groups, they all helped him get back in touch with his emotional life. They all helped him learn to navigate that landscape well. What I love about the way Miguel talks about this process in his article is he doesn't end it there. The healing would be enough. But he doesn't talk about healing those things as an end in and of itself. Instead, as he heals, he realizes, you know what, I wasn't just hurting myself. These emotions being repressed didn't just cause me pain. But allowing them actually helps me live. I saw places in my life, he said, where feelings in the past had helped pull me off of paths that intellect and rationality and conventional values would have sent me right down. I recognized these emotion-driven decisions that I had been so ashamed of, that I thought made me such a failure. At the time, they seemed disastrous. He says, my choice to drop out of college during a deep depression is a big one. But they were absolutely the right choice. And they eventually were things that affirmed who I wanted to be instead of who I thought I should be. There may be all kinds of reasons. A combination of reasons, right? Just like Miguel had a combination of reasons that anger or sadness maybe feels dangerous for you, for us. And it can be useful to know why, right? Therapists are great for that. Help unravel the why. But knowing is really only half the battle. The relief really comes when we remember and trust what we know. When we trust what we know about how we got here and then show ourselves some grace, some forgiveness for being wherever it is that we are right now. Because wherever it is that we are is a product of, yes, a couple of our own choices and also the accident of where we were born, who we were born to, the culture we live in the childhood, youthful adaptations that we found when maybe we had nothing better available to us, the coping skills that we built. Forgiving ourselves for being where we are rather than running from our truth is maybe the first step. And then being able to be here, truly where we are, to get to know this place's contours and landscapes. Opens up the freedom to make those choices that break us out of the ruts that we've been running in. So that we can stay true to our intentions for our real lives, for our real relationships, the people and places around us. Just like that Amy Mann song. It's all about surrendering to what's here giving up the endless running and facing what's not going to stop showing up until we wise up. In her poem, Now I Become Myself, Mae Sarton says that it's taken her time, many years and places, madly running to stop wearing other people's faces. And yet wherever we go, our truest self stays with us. There is a true self inside each of us, 
each of you, that can only be you. It's not an indulgence to get to know who that person is. None of us does the world a favor by running or denying ourselves or focusing exclusively on other people. Learning to be skillful and honest and friendly with our own selves is for us actually an act of faith. Right? As a people who believe that each one of us, no exceptions, carries a small spark of the divine. Each of us one piece of the puzzle that makes up whatever you want to call it, God, the beloved community, heaven on earth. That means that we all need your piece of the puzzle and vice versa. So today, may we acknowledge the endless different ways that all of us run from who we really are. And may we begin to accept the invitation of a greater love that can handle us, that can hold it all. To just stay still for that with a moment and to sit and get to know ourselves. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Will you pray with me? Beloved God who is so many things. God who has so many different names that people call out to you too. God that we each have our own experience of. Whatever we know you as. The sky, the sun, the still quiet voice inside our hearts. For some reason, there are so many of us, all different. And yet there has always been this pull in each of us to connect to each other and to something greater. That great mystery, which we may never know why it is, is true in the evidence that we see around us in this room this morning, in these communities we live in, in these families we build. May we learn to trust that even if we don't know why, that calling in us to connect is a good one. And may we learn to experience ourselves as worthy of that calling. For these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen.